Good evening. It's good to see you tonight. Glad that you're here. We're in Romans chapter 2. We were talking last week about the sameness of sin as we were progressing through the chapter, and that's really Paul's point. The Gentiles are under sin, Romans chapter 1. The Jews are also under sin, chapter 2. Uh, let me offer a brief refocus uh, about something I said last week. I said concerning chapter 1, particularly verses 18 to the end of the chapter, I said concerning that section that whenever the events in chapter 1 take place, the results will be the same. Do you recall hearing something like that last week? While I did not reference our nation specifically, I may have by that statement led you to think about our nation. And, and while that it's true, I suppose, at least in some people's mind, here's the potential for us to lose focus on what I'd like to bring us back to. Paul is not talking about future nations when he pens the words of Romans chapter 1. He's actually looking backward at the Gentiles. And I would urge the time after the flood forward. And so Paul writes of them, they knew God. And the truth is, Man has never lived in a, a day on planet Earth without knowing God. From the day he was made, he knew God. Adam knew God. Subsequent generations knew God, Genesis chapter 5. The flood came and took them all away. They left the ark knowing God. And what Paul says is they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, and then God gave them up. So he's actually looking backward at the Gentiles. I'm only offering this refocus because of what I said might lead someone to take the step. America is not the exact fit for this context. And, and, and again, many will argue, well, we've left our original moorings and so forth. America, as presently constructed, does not fit the context of Romans chapter 1 for a variety of reasons. He says here the Gentiles knew God. This is not the same thing with reference to our nation. He says the Gentiles were given up, given up, and given over. That's not the same. The Gentiles were without God and without hope. That's not the same. And in America, there is the church. And the church God's holy nation, the church is the salt of the earth, the church is the light of the world, and therefore it's, it's not the same at all. When he's looking backward, he says, no hope and without God. That's not, that's not the same. And so similar is not sameness, likeness is not identicalness. I, I tell you this because I'm the one who said it. Whenever these actions take place, then and, and you might just take from that, well, yeah, that's it. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do my own damage control because I did it. So I want to walk that backward. I did not mean to suggest that you should read Romans 1 and then think you are reading a message about our nation. It's not that, and it's not the same. Paul is making the case for how God justifies all mankind in the book. In order to make that case, he first has to establish why all men need justification in the first place. 
And the reason they need justification in the first place is because of sin. And so as he seeks to help his countrymen come to a knowledge of the truth, he takes this look backward and says the Gentiles, they didn't like to retain God, and God gave them up. And then he pivots to the Jews and says, you did the same thing. And that's really what we're going to read through the book. And so I offer a slight refocus. <laughs> Chapter 2. You know, I'm old enough to have the television still tuned back way back when. You could tune. That's what that was. I hope you felt tuned. <laughs> chapter 2, the Jews are also under sin. That's how the chapter begins. There is chapter 2, 1 and 2, there's no excuse for sin. 3 and 4, there is no escape from judgment. 5 through 9, there are no exceptions from God's judgment. And this is about the area where we were last week, I think about verse number six is where we will pick up this evening. And as Paul talks about God's judgment on the Jews, he says that judgment is just, it's right. Uh, the goodness of God should have led them to repentance, verse number four, because of their stubbornness and unrepentant heart. You're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Verse number six continues that thought, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who, deeds, who does evil, of the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So this entire discussion here, from 1 really to 9 or 10, it's about the righteous judgment of God on the Jews for the same sinful life that they lived. It is a lack of knowledge of God to believe that people in covenant with God are allowed to sin just because they're in covenant. And Paul is going to later say about these Jews, they made their boast in the law. The fact that we're God's chosen somehow in their mind led them to believe it doesn't really matter how we live. And Paul says, God judges for that. God has judged in the past. He will judge in the future. And there are many instances in the Old Testament where that issue is broached. Take, for example, Isaiah chapter 1. If you were to read Isaiah 1, the first 15 verses, you will actually hear God say to his people, don't bring sacrifices. I don't want them. And the reason he doesn't want them is their lives does not equal or walk in harmony with the law. And as a result of that, while they have the law, and while they are God's people, their hearts are not engaged, they are not living right, and God rejects it. I do not want your sacrifices. You will find similar language in Jeremiah chapter 7, where God tells the prophet, stand at the gate, 
for those who enter the Lord's house and preach a sermon there. I've never done this, but that imagery has always led me to believe that that would look something like a preacher standing at the entrance to the building. He wouldn't wait for you to come in and sit down and give you the sermon. He would be preaching the sermon as you approached. And as you approached, he would be asking you, what are you doing here? He would be telling you, amend your ways and your doings. If you're going to come here and worship God, then live right. And if you're not going to live right, then why are you even bothering? That's kind of the gist of the sermon if you read Jeremiah chapter 7. And what he will say to them is, don't trust in the temple. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. That's what they say. This is what he's discussing. Your lives have not been in harmony with God and his law, and therefore God will judge you just like he judged the Gentiles of chapter 1. He says very clearly, two groups of people, verse number 6, 7, 8, and 9. Verse 6, he will render to each person according to his deeds. And then there are two options in 7 and 8. Those who by perseverance in doing good. Here are people then walking in harmony with God, walking in harmony with his law. Those individuals who continually do good, they will seek for glory and honor, immortality, and eternal life. That's what their end will be. On the other hand, to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Notice again, verse number 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. You've read that phrase before, but it was in reference to the gospel in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. The gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So to the judgment, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Both of these passages demonstrate equality. Judgment is a matter of justice on the part of and the character of God. A good summation of these things in verse number 10 and 11, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And verse number 11 says, for there is no partiality with God. This would have been news for the Jews to hear, and they wouldn't have been their first time hearing it, but they would need to know this, that the giving up of the Gentiles was because of sin. Well, if the Jews lived the exact same way as the Gentiles lived, they should then expect from God the exact same thing. What happens to the Jews is, in their desire to be like all the nations, they actually became just like all the nations, idolatrous, immoral, ungodly, and they were also sent into captivity multiple times because of sin. The reason, there is no partiality with God. Chapter 2, verses 12 to 16, Paul will illustrate what he's already said. And it's probably in answer to some of the questions the Jews may have had after hearing the first 10 verses. The illustration is to try to get the Jews to understand the things that have been said. 
they likely would disagree. They likely would tell Paul he, he's, he's mistaken about this. And it probably is the explanation for their question in chapter 3 and verse number 1, where they will ultimately say, well, what's the advantage of being a Jew? You know, if it's the case that we're just like them, what, what, what advantage did we ever have then? I thought we were special. I thought we were chosen. I thought we were different than all the nations. And now you're telling us effectively we're the same. Well, they were God's chosen. They were special. They were his only special people, except they turned away from God. And in turning away from God, what are they without him? It wasn't the law that made them special. It wasn't the tabernacle that made them special. It wasn't the priest or the prophets that made them special. It was God. And if you turn away from God, well, then you become just like all the nations. Chapter 1, the Gentiles gave God up, and then God chose Abraham and made for himself out of those people a special nation. That nation, in turn, largely gave God up too. They were a means to an end, and they were, as long as, faithful and holy to God, then they were his special chosen people. But even with that, they were always a means to an end, and that end was the Christ. And the Christ is the Savior of the whole world. And somewhere, that part seemed to be lost on them. So let's read 12 to 16. We'll come back and we'll talk about them. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having, a, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness in their thoughts alternatively, or alternately, accusing else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So here in that, the explanation or further evidence of the first 11 verses. Uh, Paul says in verse number 12, all who have sinned without the law, the all would include the Jews and the Gentiles. That's who he's talking about. Chapter 1, chapter 2. All who have sinned without the law. There, uh, I looked at several different versions of this verse, and some will leave out the word the before the law, and others will include it. Um, one rendering says, all those who have done wrong without the law will get destruction without the law. Another says, those people who don't know about God's law will be punished for what they do wrong. People who have the law and those who never heard of the law are all the same when they sin. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. For all who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. The Gentiles' problem is the same as the Jews' problem, and that is sin. And Paul's point ultimately is all who sin will perish. Those without law or without the law and those with the law. The Gentiles were not under the law of Moses. The Jews were. 
And those who sinned not under the law, those who sinned under the law, will both perish because of sin. Not being under the law did not mean they were without law altogether. In fact, chapter 1 tells us they knew God. They did not glorify Him as God. They exchanged God, 24, 26, 28. Ephesians 2 says the same, 2, 1 through 5, 11, and 13. An analogy for the Jews is to understand their condition and why they're being judged because of sin. And Paul's going to later say that on some level, the Gentiles are managing out of instinct. That is, out of whatever God has put in us, when they do those things, uh, on some level, what they're doing would be the same as if they had had revelation from God. You have the revelation, they don't, but the instinctive things that they do are in harmony with that revelation. The Jews seem to have thought hearing the law, having the law, made them insulated and approved. And Paul explains it's not the hearing of the law, it's not the having of the law, it's obeying the law, the doing of the law. Those same two passages we reference, Isaiah 1, Jeremiah 7, both of the prophets would say the same. You are not free to sin because you have the temple. You are not free to sin because you have the law. Verse 14, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. Those not having the law are a law to themselves. The Gentiles did not have the law. It's, it's, it's not the same, but they did have, some would argue, the law of conscience. They certainly knew God, and they knew things were right and wrong. And uh, Paul says when they did those things, those things actually are in harmony with the moral teachings of the revealed law. And as you read through your Bible, you're not going to have any issue realizing that people knew right and wrong very early in Scripture. Genesis 2, Adam and Eve knew it was wrong to eat of the tree. They knew that. God told them. Genesis 4, Cain knew it was wrong to murder his brother. Whether he was ever told that specifically or not, he knew it was wrong to do. He knew that instinctively. You can see his actions demonstrate that. What did he do in the murder of his brother? He hid. He hid it. Number two, he lied about it. Why would you lie about it? Where is your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother? Yes. Why would you lie about that? You know it's wrong. He was concerned, thirdly, about other people killing him. Why do you have that concern? He knows what he did was wrong. McKnight says this, when therefore the Gentiles who have not a law do by nature the things of the law, these persons, though not they don't have a law, are a law to themselves. In explanation, he says, the Gentiles had no revealed law, and so they were a law unto themselves. The Gentiles never had the law of Moses, but there are certain fundamental principles that inhere in the nature of our existence and in our relations to one another. Some things are right, some things are wrong within themselves. The moral requirements of the law of Moses are the things which the Gentiles might do by nature. The Jews did these by revelation. The Gentiles by nature, that is, insofar as they did them at all, 
But let us remember that the law under which any person lives condemns him if he does not keep it perfectly. Paul does not say that the Gentiles lived up to their natural law any more than the Jews lived up to the revealed law. On the contrary, he was seeking to show that all were sinners and needed the gospel of Christ to save them. But they did have an idea of right and wrong. Questions or comments you have about anything we've discussed so far before we move further? The Jews needed to know, and I, this is Paul's point, that having the law did not justify. Conscience cannot justify. He mentions that with reference to the Gentiles, verse number 15. They show the work of the law in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness. The conscience can't justify. It can only urge you to act in harmony with what you believe is right. What you need by way of justification is revelation. You need God's mind revealed to tell you what he wants you to do so he can justify you. Short of that, your conscience can only tell you to act in harmony with what you believe is right. If you do that, your conscience will approve of you. If you do what you believe to be wrong, your conscience will accuse you. But the fact that your conscience works in this way doesn't tell you whether or not what you believe is actually right or wrong. In other words, you could have a clear conscience and do terrible things because you're only doing what you believe is right. It doesn't mean it is right. There's a very good example of this in your New Testament, and you know him very well. His name is Saul of Tarsus. If you met him, he would have killed Christians, and he would have gone home at night and gone to sleep with no pain of conscience because he believed it was the right thing to do. And since he believed it was the right thing to do and he did it, his conscience would simply say, okay, I won't care, cause you any pain because I approve of what you're doing relative to your belief. What we know to be the case is he was doing wrong. He just didn't know it. And so the conscience won't justify. It will simply approve or accuse. Acts 23, 1, Paul will say, brethren, I've lived before God in all good conscience. Acts chapter 26 and verse 9, Paul will say, I thought with myself that I should do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which things I did. Clear conscience, doing the wrong thing. Verse number 16, on the day when God will, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Jesus is the Savior of all men and the judge of all men. Paul does this in the book. He will go backward and then forward. With reference to Jesus, then, that is an immediate reference right back to the present. Jesus is going to judge. Well, who is he going to judge? He's going to judge everybody. Acts 17, 30, and 31. 
God is appointed that he will judge the world in righteousness by that man. With Paul's reference to Jesus, then he moves from a discussion looking backward at the Gentiles, backward at the Jews, right to the present and say, listen, Jesus is going to judge everybody. And you'll notice the word gospel in the verse. And so again, we're not anymore looking backward. We're not talking about Jews, Gentiles. But we're talking about now, present, and going forward. Jesus is going to judge by the gospel. It's why all men need him. 17 to 21, their relationship with God, as Paul continues to build on this case about the Jew and the Gentile, specifically the Jew here, but he's going to again reference the Gentiles. And as he does that, he's trying to drive home this point with the Jews that our relationship with God, their relationship with God, is not simply physical. The flesh was the outward manifestation of the Spirit. It should have been the Spirit that was given to God, not simply the flesh. Let's read some verses. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. So all of the first seven, 16 verses, you hear that in verse 17 down to 25, where again, Paul says, listen, this is about you and your personal responsibility to God. You're out here saying one thing and doing another. It would be a mistake, as some people make, to believe that God didn't want their hearts in the Old Testament. It wasn't just that they had the law. So listen to Paul say in verse 17, okay, you bear the name Jew got you. What does that make you? That makes you God's chosen special people. That's the name you bear. You're not a Gentile, you're a Jew. Okay. If you're a Jew, then he says, now because of that name, you rely, you make your boast in God and in the law. You, you rest upon the law. We have the law. We are the Jews. We are God's chosen. Okay, fine. That's what you do. He says further in verse number 18, you know his will. How would you know that? Revelation, you have the law. You approve the things that are essential, being instructed where? Out of the law. In fact, when we get to chapter 3 and the question is asked, what advantage had the Jew? Paul will return to this answer. Their advantage was the law. Now, they had many advantages, and we could enumerate many advantages. If Moses is your lawgiver, you have an advantage. If Aaron is your high priest, you have an advantage. If you have sacrifices, you have an advantage. Tabernacle, advantage. And you could go on and on and on. Paul will say chiefly in, and he said, in every way, chiefly this, you had the law. The law was the singular greatest advantage the Jews had because the law revealed God. And the law revealed his will. By having his revelation, you have his mind. By having his mind, you have his will. 
you can approve, disapprove. You know the mind of God. If you want to find the Gentiles back in chapter 1, you will find them in ignorance and darkness. If you'll find them in Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, you'll find them without God and without hope. What is it that the Jews had? You had the law. So, you have the law. You are a Jew. You make your boast in God. You know His will. You approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law. Are you confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind? You are, he goes on to say, a light to those in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. So that's what you have, and this is what you've done with it. When you find Jesus and his correction of the Pharisees, his harsh rebuke of them in Matthew chapter 23. This is the nature of that rebuke. They had the law. Jesus would say of them, they say and do not. He would say of them, they bind on others heavy burdens. They won't lift one with their finger. He goes on to say they broke the law, Matthew 23, 7. They would compass land and sea to make a proselyte two times worse a child of the devil or a child of hell, Matthew 23, 15. This fleshly works-based approach to God, it looked the part. Jesus will call them whited sepulchers, clean on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones. This is the religion Paul is describing, and that's the way they were living. Some of these people became Christians, and now they're attempting to teach that in the church, this same approach. Acts 15, 5 to 7, Galatians 2, 1 through 5. Paul will refer to them as false brethren who seek to bring us into bondage. The law should not be thought of as the problem. Their boasting and their fleshly approach to God is the problem. What happens to such an approach Verse 21, 22, 23, 24 is what happens. And so, you teach another, but you don't teach yourself. You preach that one should not steal. Do you steal? You say that one should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You abhor idols. Do you rob temples? You boast in the law, and through breaking the law, you dishonor God? You who say, you'll notice the word you keeps being employed. You boast. You who say, you abhor idols. You boast. They boasted in having the law, but they didn't humble themselves and follow the law. It is written, Paul says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Who would you use to judge the effectiveness of the law except those under it? The Gentiles would look at the Jews. If this is God and this is the law and these are his people, what should we look to? Well, they would look to you. And what they would find is you live just like us while telling us you're God's chosen special people. 
while telling us you are better off than we are, while telling us we should become what you are. And Paul says the name of God is blasphemed among you. Imagine how the nations around Israel responded when Israel lived like them. Now, we should point out, and there are two different thoughts about this. So if you go back to verse 19, 18, 19, 20, 21, right in that area, some would say that he's talking about the Jews teaching their fellow Jews. And uh, the truth is, they were more, no more nicer to their fellow Jews who sinned than they were the Gentiles. They weren't. In, in Luke chapter 15, those are Jews, publicans and sinners sitting with Jesus. Those are Jewish people. And their thoughts about them is, why is he doing that? Uh, the Jews were, some of them, said to be in darkness. That's also true. It's verse 25, I think, that at least the Gentiles were also in darkness. And verse 24 says, the name of the Gentiles is, what, is who is blaspheming. And Paul says earlier, they're trying to make proselytes, those from Gentiles who would then ultimately try to become Jews and follow the law of Moses, be circumcised and otherwise. Verse 25 to 29, he explains the significance of all of this. He says, for indeed, circumcision is a value if, if you practice the law. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant, Genesis 17, 10 to 14. Jesus often spoke to the Jews about obeying the law versus having the law, Matthew 22 over to chapter 25. Jesus in the gospel with the Jews. Here we just read the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision is in value if you obey the law. What happens if you don't? If you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, would not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? That harkens back to the former discussion with the Gentiles doing those things by nature over there earlier in the chapter, same discussion, simply then again trying to highlight to the Jews that there are people who are doing naturally what you should be doing by, by the law. Verse 27, then, he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you having the code and, and circumcision but break the law. Verses 26 and 27, Paul goes back and forth between Jewish behavior and the law and comparing Gentile behavior without it. He's explaining the point that's already been made. The Jews were without excuse. They condemned the Gentiles, and then they did the exact same thing. In fact, interestingly, Paul says the Gentiles were without excuse and the Jews were without excuse. Notice back in chapter 1, Paul says, uh, even, uh, there is a passage in chapter 1, 18, somewhere down that says they are without excuse. Go ahead, when you see it, just shout it out. 20, bless your heart. Since the creation of the world is invisible, attributes, eternal power, divine nature, clearly seen, being understood through the things have been made, so that they are without excuse. Notice how chapter 2 opens. Therefore, you have no excuse. Gentiles and Jews were without excuse. 
one knew God and didn't glorify him as God and exchanged him for idols. The other had God made their boast in the law and simply turned their heart from living for God. Saying I'm circumcised while living a sinful life brings blasphemy against God and shame upon the owner of such a faith. And this is the kind of language you will hear the prophets speaking. If you go back to Ezekiel chapter 3, you read Ezekiel and sometimes uh, whenever we hear the idea of someone watching out or sharing the gospel with someone or sharing God's word with somebody, we typically make it evangelistic. And what we're reading in, in, in Romans 2 is what the prophets would have been saying in the Old Testament to the Jews. Notice Ezekiel 3 in verse number 5 or verse 4. He said to me, son of man, where is he going? Go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. Notice verse number 5. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech, of difficult language, but, he restates it, to the house of Israel, nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech. Who would those peoples be? That would be the Gentiles. That would be the nations. And he says twice, I am not sending you to them. He says, whose words you cannot understand, but I have, not, I have sent you to them who should listen to you. Yet, the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you since they are not willing to listen to me. Surely the house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. Slide down to verse 17. Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman. To whom? To the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. What's he warning them about? Wickedness. Usually when, when you hear this preached today, we'll go back to Ezekiel 3 and then we'll say, we are watchmen. But we will pivot and say, go to all the world. That's the exact opposite of what he says. If you want to be watchmen, well, the house of Israel in the New Testament is the church. It's not the world. It's no more the world today than it was here. And he says it at least three times. I'm sending you to Israel. I'm not sending you. He states it more than once. I'm not sending you to people of a strange speech. I'm not sending you to people of a difficult language. I'm not sending you. In fact, at one point he says, if I did, they'd listen. But my people won't listen. The people Paul are talking to are the descendants of those people, and they're living the same way. And you're without excuse. Because you are doing the very things that these are the very people Paul are talking to, and that's how they've been living. And wickedness has abounded in Israel. And to the point that God has to say through Paul, the circumcision is effective if you live the life. It's not for the sake of simply having the law or hearing the law, or possessing the law, or having circumcision, or the name Jew. That's not where you're hanging your hat on your salvation or relationship with God. It's that you've given him your heart, and you're living the life. 
And short of that, then you and God won't have a relationship, and you're no better off than the Gentiles of chapter 1. Yes, sir, I saw a hand. Absolutely. Uh, the, Paul is going to say more. So he's already said having the law, that's not going to do it. Having the name Jew, that's not going to do it. Having circumcision, that's not going to do it. And then in 28 and 29, Paul says, for he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart and the spirit or by the spirit and not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So Paul has said this boasting in the law, can't do that. Having the law, that's not it. Even circumcision, but now he gets so pointed that he says, you're not even a Jew. He is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. If being a Jew were merely the outward circumcision and that was it, Paul says that's not it at all. You are not even God's people. And in fact, that's ultimately the point he's trying to make. But look quickly at Philippians 3 and listen to what Paul says here with reference to Christians, which he hopes his countrymen will become. Philippians 3, let's begin at verse number 1. We'll read quickly. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same thing again. There's no trouble to me and to you as a safeguard for you. Beware of dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the circumcision. You might have true in italics. For we are the true circumcision, whose worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Who are those who are the Jews? Who are God's chosen people? That ultimately is the question behind all that's being discussed. Paul's going to get to that answer for absolute sure, and he's going to say it's Christians. It's those who are in Christ. As he builds that case, he keeps saying and bringing us to this reality that it's not the outward work in the flesh. It is the Spirit in man giving his heart to God. It's the Spirit. Please, when you read the word spirit in the book of Romans, don't go Holy Spirit every time you read it. 
remember the, I don't know, go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 9. Paul says, for God whom I serve presently. He's not looking backward. For God whom I serve in my spirit. He's going to talk about flesh quite a bit, but it has to do with this works-based outwardly we have the law, we have the circumcision, we have the name Jew, we have all these physical outward things, and that's where we make Paul says, no, it's in your spirit that has to be given to God. And please understand, that was required under the Old Testament. God wanted their spirit under the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and following is a is is well let me go in reverse matthew 22 37 through 40 when jesus says love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength that's a quote from the old testament that's not the origination in the new testament the question he was asked was what's the greatest commandment in the law his answer Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. He's always wanted our spirit. And nothing has changed about that today. He wanted that in the Old Testament the Jews didn't give it in chapter 2. And so the Gentiles are in sin, the Jews are under sin, and that brings us to chapter 3, where Lord's will will pick up next week. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God in heaven, we give you glory, honor, and praise for another year, another day, for all of your goodness and kindness. We thank you so much for your great eternal plan that culminates in our Savior dying for the sins of the world and giving us an opportunity to be reconciled back to you. We are thankful, Father, for the work of the Spirit, the maturing of the church, and the revelation, inspiration, confirmation of the Word, the equipping of the saints, and all that he has done to provide for us your Word and the revelation that we have. And we're thankful, Father, that through it we can know you, know your will, and live for you. We pray, Father, that we will learn the examples of the Old Testament, follow those that are good, and spurn those that are bad. We pray that you will bless us and strengthen us in every effort to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.